0: Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelic Spotlight podcast. I'm your host, Swati Sharma, radio host, blogger, and executive director at Psychedelic Spotlight. And joining me on the show today is Colette Condorcida. She is an entrepreneur, a shamanic coach, and a regenerative designer. She has over 20 years of experience in the regenerative agriculture space, permaculture, and herbalism, and has also been working and apprenticing with traditional cuanderos in Latin America for over a decade. Colette is a Philly native, and she is the founder of Decriminalize Nature Philadelphia, the local chapter working to decriminalize entheogenic plants and fungi in the city. She's also the founder of Passion Flower House, a seven-unit co-housing community, community garden and plant medicine education space in her neighborhood of West Philly. And Of course, she also does her coaching practice under Condor Medicine, where she specializes in psychedelic integration and supporting clients that are working with transpersonal states of consciousness. So lots of very cool, diverse experiences and background here for Colette. I I first met her while I was visiting Tapuza Mexico, and uh, there I learned a little bit about her work as a shamanic coach and her work within the permaculture area. So in this podcast, we actually dive into a little bit of her background, working with plant medicines and indigenous groups in Central America and South America, and we talk a little bit about her psychedelic work and how that is also intrinsically aligned with her work in the permaculture area and about a few of her projects in that capacity as well. We also chat a little bit about her community work in West Philadelphia and how her contribution to decriminalized Philadelphia is so important to the community as well as her other projects that are kind of working in uh, the more impoverished areas of the city. So very exciting stuff, I hope that you guys stick around for that. I should also mention that Colette will be facilitating a very exciting event coming up in Philadelphia called Soul Psychedelphia alongside Decriminalized Philadelphia, the Spore Group, and Balance Veterans on June 24th at the One Art Community Center. It is a free event open to the public from 3 to 8 p.m. and onward. And so if you're in the Philadelphia area, definitely go and check it out. There will be speaker panels there will be artisans and a lot of uh, members of the psychedelic community coming together uh, as well as some musical guests so you can learn more about the event at soulpsychedelphia.com so s-o-l-p-s-y-c-h-e-d-e-l-p-h-i-a.com or you can find them on instagram at SoulPsychedelia. so without further ado let's get into the episode Hey, how's it going, Colette? Hi, Swati. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today I'm on the podcast. I was really looking forward to, to connect with you again and chatting a little bit about some of your work. Thank you so much. It's so it's so great to be here with you. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, uh, how have things been going for you lately? What have you been kind of focusing your work on at the moment?
1: Well, um, so you know, we have this big event coming up for Decrim Nature Philadelphia on June 24th. So, we've been putting things together pretty quickly for this for this event so definitely been putting a lot of time and energy for that um i have a a a beautiful beautiful woman's retreat next week at tandava center uh in teposland mexico which is a center that focuses on the safe and effective use of five meo DMT. so i have this beautiful beautiful retreat there with victoria who's one of the co-founders starting next week in mexico And I'm also working on a really big project in Costa Rica, Uh, just briefly explaining that uh, to you yesterday, working on a really interesting concept that I I can't speak too much about. We're going to be releasing uh, the project in a few months, but really just this very interesting metaverse project that's integrating the the sort of psycho-spiritual, practical aspects of land tenure and um, a really cool real estate development project and community project. So uh, some really, really cool things going on.
0: Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. I mean, you have a lot of varied experience, I think, not only with plant medicine, just with kind of um, permaculture and other areas in general. So it's really cool to be able to see how you're able to fuse some of that work together. Um, I know that you have also spent a lot of time working with indigenous communities in the past. So uh, maybe we can start from the top with uh, some of your work uh, in the plant medicine space uh, and with indigenous communities.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, when I was uh, after I graduated college, I you know I did my undergraduate training in international development and international relations, and I wanted to really go out in the world um, because i was I was studying how our development model doesn't work uh, fundamentally even even by experts, you know how they were telling me it doesn't work. and I got really turned on to ecological design and permaculture and um, wound up landing in Australia after doing another program in mapping design and GIS and studied with a lot of really the master elders in, in permaculture, which is really just a, a, a collection and a synthesis of really indigenous land tenure and um, land tenure practices. And of course, permaculture now extends into so many different things. You know, it's really what I like to, to think about as a design methodology and a way to be able to really be, to be interacting with the landscape and in a very multi-dimensional way um, that, you know, as a sort of kind of generalizing, of course, but thinking about this sort of indigenous mind of how indigenous people have connected with the land in a practical way and being able to support themselves and being able to protect it and take care of it because they're so directly connected to the land. And then also the the really the spiritual and the, the psycho-spiritual aspects of of being in a deep relationship, a deep physical Uh, emotional spiritual relationship with nature um, and of course our individuality in nature and so wound up um, being in you know southeast asia for some years working with uh, indigenous communities there um, helping them with learning about regenerative agriculture and working with a lot of minority groups indigenous minority groups from burma who were um, using regenerative agriculture as an act of resistance for the burmese junta um coming over to Thailand to, you know, train in secrecy to be able to go and to to work and to um to share those resources with their community where the government was actively persecuting people by dismantling the connection that they have with land uh, without going too deeply into that. Um and then, you know, some years later wound up, you know, getting involved with cannabis, um, and then got wound up getting involved in, you know, working with uh you know I think like a lot of us we we all have tragedies we all have a lot of struggle and pain and different traumatic things that happen in our our lives and um you know me and my family we've had some very strong things that have happened to us and uh you know so after a series of um really painful things that happened in my family my my younger sister was was actually murdered by her 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 boyfriend um i wound up uh being costa rica And had really my first experience working with ayahuasca. And it was also after many years of working with, you know, psychedelic fungi and having, you know, different psychedelic experiences. But working with ayahuasca at that time, about 11 years ago now, um, was very interesting. And to be quite honest, I had no idea what I was even doing. It was like (laughs) some friends invited me. I had never heard of the tool. Um, you know, and I remember after the ceremony where I, I had this experience where um, it felt like all. Well, no, it was. It wasn't. I. It felt. It was like all of my ancestors were literally crawling over each other to come and talk with me and, and share information with me and, and connect with me in that space. And um, and then there was information I was receiving that I wound up, you know, subsequently delivering to people, uh, you know, here uh, in this dimension, in this in this timeline, um, that wound up being really interesting and supportive to them and, and connected pieces to them. So. Um, That was this first moment that kind of opened up a lot for me. And, um, and, you know, my, my, my work with ayahuasca has been something that has been really beautiful. And, um, and, uh, so supportive and also been really difficult mm-hmm. and really challenging. Definitely. Yeah. And so, and that's something that I think, you know, you and I were sharing with, you know, in just other discussion that um this, that's not always talked about. Right. But very difficult experiences early on and, and took a lot of really some years to integrate. And, um and I, I took a step back after, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I wound up, you know, working as sort of the permaculture facilitator for the temple, of the way of the light. Cool. Um in Peru, and it was just too much for me to be honest. Like I was dealing with some serious physical issues. I I broke my neck when I was a, a teenager and had a and without going too deep into that story, but um had a very miraculous recovery, and but I still walk with a limp and um and had some physical stuff come up, and then I wound up landing back in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and um and this was about uh you know maybe eight nine years ago now, um and uh, and as my home base. And, um, I developed, uh, and curated, you know, this, this beautiful uh, building that is in my, the neighborhood that I've been connected with since I was a teenager in West Philadelphia, that's called the passion flower house. And I just felt like I really needed to ground and have some, some space and some grounding. And, um, and this was when, you know, I, you know, created this, this co-housing community, a really beautiful urban garden. The house is called the passion flower house because we grow past in Carnada um, which is actually an ayahuasca analog. It's an MAOI inhibitor, and a lot of different, uh, you know, ayahuasca cultures use that as an addition to the brew. And um, it has really sort of this like uh, this interesting astral connection to to you know more more standardized plants that we think of when we think about ayahuasca, right, like chacruna and, and mm-hmm. Um But it, you could basically make a, you know a, what what would be called prairie wasca um, for those of you who are kind of interested in ethnobotany where you combine um, Passiflora incarnata uh, and bundleweed, which is a mimosa uh, species plant that is a ground cover commonly used in the Midwest. Um, and, uh, and we don't use it for that purpose. However, passionflower, uh, Passiflora incarnata in and of itself is a beautiful, beautiful plant that helps with anxiety and depression and PTSD. And it also helps people get off narcotic drugs and um, it grows voraciously. And so we do different workshops there and, and get the medicine out in the community. And, you know, in these last many years since COVID started and I got a bit stuck here, um, you know, like a lot of people got stuck in their respective places. I shouldn't say stuck, but, you know, I couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, you know, really interesting to start the Decrim uh, campaign here. And that was really part of like, you know, the last few years doing that. Um, You know, with, with working with indigenous people in South America, maybe seven years ago now, I got really called back to start working with the medicine, and it worked in a really interesting way how that happened. And um, it's just opened up a lot of really, uh, really just my shamanic family. Um, you know, I work with, work and study with two different lineages in Colombia. And then I also work with an individual named Don Alberto Arlecki, Yarlecki, mm-hmm. who is based in Mexico, who's a transpersonal psychotherapist and, um, and a traditional ayahuasquero and uh just really have become fascinated with this intersection of um of science and shamanism and i'm like doubling down on that endlessly right now so you know this is really the perspective that that i lead and how i am designing spaces and also you know i'm a coach and a hypnotherapist and i work with people in that space too so so sorry, that was a lot to respond.
0: <laughs> no, I, I knew that there would be a lot because I know how incredibly varied your experience is. And so I think it's really incredible that you've been able to kind of um, navigate through over the years and find ways to intertwine different areas, um, including you know permaculture, plant medicine, um, community building, just so many incredible initiatives. And now you're in this place where... You're kind of taking that experience. It sounds like, and and moving forward to fuse the two together um, instead of keeping them kind of in their separate um, spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now it's it's something that I feel really, really passionate about because I think that um, I think that we can when we can empower, especially you know, indigenous people in who are who are care. You know, most I mean, really not just in South America, right? I mean, but, you know, people that we can classify as quote unquote indigenous people. Are the primary protectors of natural land around the planet, and they're also the individuals that are that tend to be the poorest and the most persecuted by their respective governments, by yes. the extractive industries, by um, you know. I mean, just now in Colombia, I, I hadn't been going back too much the last few years, and then I was there in December, and it's a it's a common thing there where. Um, you know, Taitas or the, you know, really the Coranderos, the traditional Coranderos in the communities, um, or, you know, quote unquote shamans in the communities, um, get murdered because Mm -hmm. they're oftentimes the, the protectors of land. They're the protectors of the, 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 spiritual connectivity of the land for the community. And, um, and, you know, so they're kind of the de facto environmental activists, uh, and sometimes they're really activists, you know, and, and so even, you know, indigenous leaders, including tremendous amounts of environmental activists that may or may not be, you know, um, considered indigenous have been murdered in the last few years during COVID in Colombia, because it was like, everyone knew where they were, you know, there was lockdowns, they couldn't travel freely. And um, a Taita that I knew up in Sibundoi, who a good friend of mine worked for, um, he was murdered uh you know in the last many months and just been communicating with his family uh about that and just sharing my condolences and just his beautiful mother who is this very sweet um uh they you know they call her like a mama you know like this very sweet mama um who's you know really just this matriarch of the community um yeah so these these are really serious things and it's always this interesting thing when like you know for me i'm um I'm a white presenting person. My family is from all over the place, including the Middle East. But, you know, as a white person, um, you know, it's, it's super important to me working with these tools to be able to think about how to be able to support those communities and hope to be stepping into that deeper with, with permaculture support specifically. And I've just started kind of starting some initiatives in, in, in Puto Mayo around those things now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you um, outlined that for us. I mean, I don't think that that's very common knowledge in terms of kind of how we view shamanic uh, practitioners and their communities and how that is also delicate and intertwined as well. Um, I think that in the psychedelic space, we kind of have this conception of people working with plant medicine in a traditional way as kind of being the all-encompassing you know, knowers uh, and uh, they possess all of this incredibly sacred knowledge. And it's kind of difficult for us to see them as just members of their community operating in the day-to-day, you know. Um, and that comes yeah. with very real challenges, I think. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share that maybe you've experienced when spending time within those indigenous communities that we might need to know.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a matter of, um, I, I, I think that's a really great way to, to frame that Swati. And I think that um, there's something for me that I was sharing with with my partner the other day that, you know, I grew up in a major city in the United States um, with parents who, you know, ber- both worked like at an office every day or, or at least my mom did and my dad worked at a warehouse. But, you know, like kind of like living in this kind of lifestyle And there's just something very interesting about, about that type of mind. And it's something that it doesn't just necessarily come with, with like, you know, quote unquote indigenous people, but I mean, even like the, the mind of individuals that like live in the campo, for example, like live in the countryside, um, in, in, in the developing world where people are really, um, just really right where they are, you know, and are really directly connected with you know, just where they are, maybe they don't even have, you know, they don't have cars, they don't necessarily have transportation, their community is right there. Um, And their work is right there, because they're primarily working with the land, or maybe they're doing handicrafts that are in that particular zone. Mm -hmm. So there's something for me that is really, really, so interesting and fascinating, that, you know, my mind is like, I mean, just, you know, what I shared with you, I'm into all these different things and I'm kind of always wanting to learn more. And, it, and then there's something for me that that is so interesting about being with individuals that have a very completely different, um, really psychological, psycho-spiritual framework that has been so supportive to me and has felt so connected to me um, since, you know, this this injury I shared where you know I I really almost died and it kind of opened up a lot of things for me And so it's Mm -hmm. something that I feel very very connected to the people that I know and work with um in that way and it's uh it's yeah so it's it's very it's very cool it's very Mm -hmm. cool and I just really encourage people who are especially like on an ayahuasca path or on a path working with hickory or peyote um you know to be thinking about like how can we be Supporting, you know, these communities with, um, with you know, of course, like you go to a ceremony and you pay money. That's a level of support. Um, but how can we be protecting these individuals from? I mean, extermination because that's still happening. You know, really, like their lands getting taken from them. These, you know, where hickory is growing in Mexico and in the United States is in very, very delicate ecosystems, and it's been a very contentious thing within the decrim community about this and. We could talk about that or, or not, but, um, you know, we, us as an organization in Philadelphia, we haven't gone super deep into that, but, you know, the main, the main, um, you know, national chapter has, and it's, it's challenging discussions, you know, it's like, but, you know, for me, I, I think the most important thing is helping people protect their land, know that they have legal resources, know that, you know, we, we can support them, however, that is in advocacy and protection. So trying to find those ways to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that um, I think something that the individual is trying to navigate and understand is how can they help contribute to this cause overall if they don't necessarily have very close associations um, with these communities. Like there's just such a gap, I think there. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we can kind of work towards kind of filling that gap and making sure that we're able to uh, contribute in the best way that we can. Uh, as individuals who are kind of interested in this type of healing
1: yeah it's a really good question because also too I recognize that you know not everyone um, not everyone can like you know live the kind of life that I live and there's and I love the life that I live and it's also <laughs> I it can have its own challenges being being in different places in this and that right so um you know there's the there's a lot of different projects that people can support Um I, I highly recommend people check out Amazon Frontlines. They're a really amazing organization um, that is is really actively protecting a lot of people in Ecuador, doing political protection, um, helping you know, really like getting people involved in, uh, in 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 suing the government and getting and getting active protections for the Rurani, uh, which are a huge in, indigenous group from deep forest communities in Ecuador, which are you know right over the border from from where. You know, I, I study and work in Putomayo. Um, and then there's, you know, um, and, and sometimes they, they, of course, too, work in Colombia. Um, the Magic Fund is uh, an organization run by Taita Juanito, Juanito Chindoy Chindoy, who is one of my teachers. And I study with his family now for many, many years. Um, and Juanito is, you know, really the most powerful Taita in, in Colombia. I mean, he's got a, a very large international following now. Um, compared to when I first started studying with him, and he's got a very beautiful retreat center that's located uh, closer to Bogota. Um, his brother is caretaking. Uh, we're talking six, seven hundred acres of land in the Amazon. Um, very, very beautiful forest, and um, they're using uh, that that organization to be able to. They have these indigenous um, run and and organized plant medicine trucks and uh you know like all, because these are we're talking plant medicine we're not just talking psychedelic plant medicine right we're talking you know these are botanical uh students of nature that work with a tremendous variety of plants i mean that's really you know the the study of of what it takes to be a traditional curandero is that i kind of like to frame the use of ayahuasca as a library that it's like the library that we go into to study all of the other plants and all the other interconnections that are going on in the forest. And that was why for me, you know, um, having that background that I've had and really deep study and analysis of different, uh, of different systems in nature, that it's why I love working with ayahuasca because that's like the, the exact essence of how that tool works. Right. So like they've developed these um, really cool projects to be able to like go out and, and get people, you know, um, you know, herbal medicine care and to like and to support them with other health care needs as well. And, um, you know, Juanito is really using his his access and his privilege that he's built, you know, as being really like a poor indigenous man and like having mm-hmm. now a lot of international um, access to, to support a lot of really cool initiatives in Colombia. So I highly recommend people to check that out, too.
0: Mm, That's wonderful. Wow, that's so exciting. And um, I would love to use that information as a segue to kind of understand your work with uh, permaculture and design, and understanding how that kind of ties into the world of plant medicine and psychedelics, and how the two are just kind of um, synergistically interchangeable, and, and work with one another.
1: Hmm, yeah. Well, something I can definitely speak to that, you know, in those of you who are probably most of you who've, who are listening to this um, and have worked with psychedelic tools is that I think that a big part of how psychedelics work is that there is this process of interconnectivity and understanding how deeply interconnected we are to each other, to uh, nature, to uh, that we are nature, that we are part of nature, that we are part of a, uh, an incredibly integrated, complex system. That there is no exclusion from how that how that system works. Right? It's like everything that we are doing is creating a, a series of um, of actions and reactions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we're really looking at a design methodology of nature, you know, the study of nature, and this is something that you know, Taito Juanito talks a lot about is that we're students of nature. And I really, really resonate with that concept. Because when we think about studying consciousness, in these ways that we do when we're working with psychedelic tools, or really just psychedelic states, right? Like aside from like, okay, I'm taking a psychedelic, you know, we can enter into psychedelic states in so many different ways, right, that, you know, are coming out now more than ever, like, breath work and you know fasting and you know like running a hundred miles or you know like there's so many different ways to basically be entering into a or hypnosis you know which is why i'm such a big fan of hypnosis like there's so many different ways to be able to really study these these psychedelic states right Mm -hmm. so that's part of it and then there's also like the other sort of ways that we can be directly interconnecting with plants and with soil and with the complex Uh, interconnections that are working um, in the mineral realm and the plant realm and the fungal realm and the soil food web realm in the, you know, um, and it's not to say that someone needs to study all of these things in order to be able to, you know, really be a quote unquote, good student of nature or to be able to be, um, you know, like a good student if they're working with a, with a path of ayahuasca. However, I do think that having a direct relational framework with these modalities and really a, a permaculture um, approach. And again, permaculture is really a synthesis of indigenous um, technologies of land tenure, right? And it's just kind of like, it's kind of like a word that I use for a lack of better word, but just kind of as a disclaimer for that. But like, this is, this is, I think, something that can really accentuate someone's path of healing and someone's path of understanding um, how they can be able to connect to different tools to support themselves, because I love psychedelic tools, and also psychedelic tools are not always what I need to be using for myself personally or what you know when when people are coming to me and and are asking for me for support and guidance in 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 their own you know experiences you know there's there's a subtlety there of the right tool for the right job you know. And there's so many different tools in nature that we we can be working with and can have at our disposal, and so this is something that that subtlety that we can continuously be refining, and also starting to build these direct relational relational aspects with <laughs> really with um, the frequency and the consciousness that exists in a tree or that exists in a plant like Passiflora incarnata, or that exists in you know. Um, valerian root or that exists in tulsi or that exists in you know reishi mushrooms like Mm -hmm. there is a certain connection and frequency that we can begin to connect with when we're when we're refining our uh our sense of um how we are really interconnecting with the world around us and using psychedelics as a tool for being able to enhance that connection and to um and to to support those tools with our, with our advocacy for them and our, and our protection of them. Right. And then to be able to receive those tools uh, for our use as well. And again, that reciprocity comes into play. And I think that that's kind of a really interesting way to, to frame it and Mm -hmm. really supportive way to frame it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's really well said. Um, And I, I, I understand kind of the interconnections naturally and how that kind of, um, works with the psychedelic medicines that are also natural for the most part. Even the compounds that are synthesized also came from natural products at one point. Um, So, so yeah, it's really all interconnected. And I don't think that there is one necessarily better than the other for this reason. Um, And and that's really exciting to hear. Um, I would love to learn a little bit more about some of your work in Philadelphia in the psychedelic scene and how you've kind of navigated working with decriminalized Philadelphia and, uh, and some of the work that you have coming up with them.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. So um, before, uh, you know, maybe the winter before COVID I, I had the, um, the sense that, you know, we really needed to have our own decriminalized nature organization here in the city and nobody was doing it and nobody had started it nobody was talking about it that i knew and um i thought okay well yes i guess i gotta do this so you know um you know it's like okay so so yeah just really kind of easily started it um and started the instagram and got the url and started all those different things and um and really, during the COVID time, when it was like, okay, like I'm in Philly, let's start really getting the word out about these things. Because, you know, for for those of you who remember or don't remember, because of course the news cycles really so fast, we forget things so quickly. But, um, you know, here in Philadelphia during during COVID, we had really serious, um, really serious stuff come to come to pass. Uh, you know, there was really this this huge explosion of uh, people really being completely exhausted and fed up with uh, police brutality issues um, with really just the, the, the state that, of how, of how black people are treated in this country as well as here in Philadelphia. Um, I've been a long time activist of, you know, really supporting, you know, things that supporting, you know, anti-police brutality movements. When I was a kid, I was, you know, I'm talking like 12, 13 was going to rallies in in support of Mumia Abu Jamal and the Move movement, and there's a lot of things that have come out about them recently that have been very, um, you know, upsetting. And uh, save that for another time. But, you know, supporting a lot of you know anti police brutality and and just social justice and black justice in the city as a you know as a white ally. And during COVID, all of that it completely exploded. Our violent crime rate completely exploded we really we really tragically at my space in west philly when all of us were in the buildings the first you know a few months into COVID in the summertime we had a man that was with his two children um around the corner at our laundromat that you know my friend jenny runs um you know had two men come and to assassinate him shot at him over 20 times with 12 other people in the laundromat um he came out and and collapsed in front of the buildings and 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 died. And we took care of his children. You know, I saw his children on the street afterwards and um, brought his children into the garden. And I felt like the garden was there at that moment to support these kids. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, these types of issues in our city, let alone the absolute explosion of the opioid crisis, which was already in full swing before COVID. But um, during, during really the last few years, it's gotten worse. Uh, there's been um, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, we have a tremendous amount of people that die from from opioid-related deaths, including, you know, synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Um, we have an entire open-air camp, really, that's uh, in Kensington area, in an area called the Badlands in Philadelphia, where, I mean, really just to drive through it is traumatizing. We're talking people with open wounds and shooting up and living in complete, you know, uh, complete collapse of what looks like complete collapse of society there, Mm -hmm. let alone individuals that physically live there and are trying to raise their kids there and having, you know, those effects of um, living in a completely crime ridden and, and uh, you know, needles everywhere, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. here in Philadelphia, we have the highest um, highest poverty rate of any urban area in in the country. You know uh, something like 25,000 people, or I'm sorry, something like 25% of the the city lives on less than $13,000 a year. So, so thinking about, you know, what happens when you're living at that level of poverty, your lack of access to um, healthcare to, and, and, and it's combined with really, really serious crime issues, you know? Um, So these are not, these are not easy issues to, to, to solve. Um, However, you know, what what we really what what's really become supportive and under in in for me and how I frame this is in looking at decriminalization is that sort of looking at all of the different social issues that I just shared, as well as the fact that we have individuals that are um, starting to really use psychedelics in our community that are you know selling them online that are um, having gatherings to use them. We have you know I know multiple. Individuals that are people of color that are doing that, and there's nothing wrong with that. If any, if anything, I think that that's you know something that we I want to be able to support and um, you know help protect those people, and also to be able to start creating um, spaces where we can we can really make sure that people are staying safe using these tools, and because I think that that's something that's coming up in the psychedelic movement in general right now. That when things are hidden and they're quote unquote, illegal, and they have to kind of remain in the dark, then that's when um, bad things can happen. That's when people um, can be abused. That's when people can, you know, um, not, you know, have have contraindications that are happening. So um, and and so part of this is is really being able to make safe spaces for people to be able to um, engage in supported community access with uh, with these with these tools that really don't function in any way in how we um, would classify drugs, mm-hmm. you know, psychedelic entheogenic tools are not addictive. They're not. Um, they're overall very safe. Um, you know, there's there's of course uh, risks that can be associated with them, but there's risks associated with virtually doing everything. So really, we're wanting to be able to make the space for people to have. Uh, even after we decriminalize, it'll open the space for other organizations to come in to be able to allow for risk reduction resources and community integration resources and, and community ceremony resources. Um, and because of the state that so many people are living in in our city um, who've really, who are really living in entrenched cycles of trauma, you know, I mean, we're talking really, really serious trauma that people are navigating. I mean, this past year alone, it's like one thing, you know, when you hear about people who are, uh, who are, who are, who are killed by gun violence, but we, this past year alone, Swati, we had over 2000 people who were shot, you know, mm-hmm. like, and so every individual that shot, you know, that's, I mean, are they paralyzed Are do they have PTSD? How much time do they have to miss from work? How much time did they, you know, like there's all these other um, factors that go into how trauma is um is not getting supported or alleviated in our community especially for people that don't have access to to really good medical systems and um and we really do think that you know decriminalizing entheogenic tools are part of um the the inevitability of what's happening culturally right now uh, with, with psychedelic use and we're wanting to support um the safe and effective use of these tools because it's happening and also that these tools are not drugs; they don't in any way exemplify how um, drugs uh, are are considered to be classified, really, from um, from the the DEA. And uh, and so this is this is something that you know we really feel passionate about as being a supportive next step for the city of Philadelphia.
0: Mm, that's wonderful, and uh, thank you for kind of laying that out. I think that um, when you kind of frame it in that way, where you're kind of uh, going over the current state of poverty in Philadelphia and how psychedelics can actually be used in those communities. It it really kind of takes a bit of a different perspective than what we are consistently hearing in the headlines, you know, associated with kind of um, psychedelics are going to be used in clinical trials, and then they will be available clinically. But of course, those are so incredibly inaccessible at the moment. Um, So the idea of, you know, having um, advocacy for being able to have access to uh, psychedelic medicine is so incredibly important. Um, from communities and groups such as yourselves. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that kind of transpires in in Philadelphia and in other cities around the country and North America and the world, uh, let alone, you know, and see how that kind of works out. Because um, I think we need to kind of expand our our understanding of what this type of healing will look like for people and and how we can make sure that we have adequate resources to be able to handle that type of trauma and uh, those communities as well well.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think it's something that is not really talked about so much um, in the psychedelic community is, you know, just access and accessibility, you know, with, um, with these things. And, you know, I've, I I definitely have a lot of privilege in my life. And, you know, I, 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 I've been able to travel and to be able to, you know not be in this country and to go um, you know do have my study and my work and these different things with, with the, the tools I've, I've built a very deep relationship with so this is something that um, you know again just pulling things out of um, having things in a very confined limited um, very expensive very you know it's it's sort of it, it, it's understanding how we can be able to open these things up and to make them, more accessible and, uh, and ultimately I think having, you know, less pressure on natural resources too, because when things get decriminalized, it allows people the ability, the ability to cultivate their own, very similarly to how right worked with cannabis. And, you know, something that was interesting about cannabis actually, um, being really being leap. it's like almost the opposite, but like, you know, can the cannabis history in America, um, that plant has gotten really protected uh, because there's so much genetic diversity of that plant now. And there's so many, I mean, of course, like, but this is also to why we think that decriminalization with, with antigenic tools is the logical next step, because that's what happened with cannabis. You know, it was like it started out in the cities where cities started decriminalizing and then on the state level, and then the medical programs came in and then having, um, you know, uh, better. And then legality, you know, legal, legal access coming in over 21. And um, of course, entheogens are very different than cannabis. You know, I'm not equating them as being, you know, in the same classification of things. However, um, I do think that this is the same model that we're working on. And just having a legalization model uh, is not, is not supportive for everyone. Yes. I mean, I, I should say medicalization, Medicalization model is not going to give access to a lot of people. It's going to be cost per it's being designed right now as being very cost prohibitive. Um and it also it 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 removes people's spiritual access to these tools. I mean, I i ayahuasca is my is my spiritual tool in my life. Um, you know, I walk a path with uh that is my main tool that I use as my spiritual practice. So, you know, there's there's sort of a removal of um, you know, how we're using these tools in these different ways, you know. Um, so this is this is where we feel like we need to be putting our work and our effort in.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. That's, that's really great work. Um, and yeah, keep me posted on how that's all going. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, and uh, so I, I did want to kind of touch on some of this work that you have coming up in Philadelphia. You were saying, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, that uh, you have uh, a, an event with Decriminalized Philly coming up um, in the city, and uh, you're also going to be doing some retreat work, is that right? Yes, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, so on June 24th, uh, 3 o'clock to
1: 8 p.m., and actually maybe even more uh, or longer later into the night, we have a really amazing event at One Art Community Center, which is located in West Philadelphia, in my neighborhood. Um, it's an amazing event that is just getting absolutely filled with awesome vendors that are connected with, you know, we're talking psychedelic art, um, just really cool, you know, spiritual tools, um, just really awesome artists and and vendors. And then there's going to be a collection of different speakers there, uh, different um, psychotherapists, individuals who are working with different types of psychedelic tools, not just entheogenic tools, but um, our dear friend, jenny is coming who's a psychotherapist who's opening up uh, uh or already has open academy ketamine clinic in the city um there's uh, going to be our organization decrim nature philly as well as balanced veterans network which is run by our dear friend Ma- ron who um is also part of the decrim team and he runs an organization that helps support vets get access to cannabis now they're also opening up a wing for um for support with entheogenic tools and psychedelic tools um, so all of the funds taken in, you know, it's $5 suggested donation up until whatever you, you feel like you can support. But all donations um, for ticket pricing goes directly to Balanced Veterans and for Decrim Nature Philly. Um, of course, Ron and I will both be, be speaking about our organizations as well. And it's just a really great event for everyone to come out um, to have the conversation about this, what we're wanting to see in Philly, um, what we're not wanting to see in Philly regarding you know, this, this opening into, into psychedelic, uh, in these psychedelic tools. And, um, and it's also, you know, being sponsored by this, this, uh, company that's called the spore group that, you know, we're really, really grateful to. And, um, they are working on, uh, having access to, or not access, but their company is built around, um, you know, sharing different types of, of spores for microscopy purposes and, um, and also just, uh, that type of equipment for being able to, um, to, to study different uh, species of, 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 of fungi. So um, it's a really, really cool, really, really cool event, and we're really excited about it and uh, definitely want to see Philadelphia show up and, and to join us for that event. Um, for our retreat, uh, we, um, Victoria and I, who Victoria from Tandava retreats, um, her and I are starting our retreat on the 13th of June, so really, really soon. We do have two spaces open. Um, it's a woman-identified retreat uh, that's just absolutely filled with um, really beautiful practices to support two different medicine days with 5-MeO-DMT. And 5-MeO-DMT is, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's it's considered to be really the most powerful psychedelic in nature. Of course, there's the natural derived versions of 5-MeO, and then there's synthetic versions. Um, we are actually going to be using the synthetic version at this retreat because it's, um, without, you know, going too deeply into it, you guys can find another, um, actually here, just a podcast I just released if you, um, uh, that explains really why more deeply, but, um, but it's a, it's a safer way to use the tool because it's more calculable and measured in, in, in how much of, um, of the molecule is in the material because naturally derived sources can have, we're talking 30%, um, variation and differences. So mm-hmm. it can be to calculate especially when working with such a powerful tool so um it's just absolutely beautiful retreat and one of my favorite places on the planet that <laughs> is so stunningly gorgeous and um really just beautiful uh beautiful access to nature it's, it's called tepos magico like a lot of mexicans call it like magical tepos land <laughs> um and it really is a very magical place in a, in a luxury retreat center Um, So we, and a very small intimate group, you know, of women. So we do have two spaces open and uh, would love uh, two two more sisters to come and join us for that event as well.
0: Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Colette. It's been really wonderful to kind of, Uh, listen in on some of the work that you've done and completed i feel like you've had such an incredible journey up until now and uh, all of these incredible experiences have come together to kind of formulate this really exciting future and i love the contribution that you have to the psychedelic community it's so important so looking forward to seeing that continue swati that's so very kind thank
1: you so much it's really awesome to be here with you and Just really appreciate you guys at uh, Psychedelic Spotlight. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Global Track Solutions, Inc. and Psychedelic Spotlight
1: does not in any way encourage or condone the use, purchase, sale, or transfer of any illegal substances, nor do we encourage or condone partaking in any unlawful activities. We support a harm reduction approach for the purpose of education and promoting individual and public safety. If you are choosing to use psychedelic substances, please do so responsibly.